handout uh, that is the Bible overview handout from inside your folder. Sorry if you've got one where the printing went a bit weird, but it's the, the chunky one, 18 pages long. And that will keep us going over. There are four Bible overview sessions across the, the course of Foundations. And uh, it is really one talk rather than four talks. So it's not kind of a sermon. It's not a lecture. I hope it's a kind of interactive. I hope it's helpful. Um, There's any number of ways you could go about trying to do a Bible overview in, I think we get about five hours of airtime together. Um, And uh, so this is one of them and we'll see how we go. But uh, we've prayed, have we? I think sufficiently, do you think? It's hard to tell. I think it probably worked the first time, so I, I, but I'm going to pray again anyway because I now feel as though I, I ought to. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering like this, knowing that if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus, we're your children, that you love us, that you want us to grow in our relationship with you and in our likeness to your Son. Um, we would pray that much as you would give us understanding of your word, in these days, that you would help us to know you better through it. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're going to do some time uh, just kind of turning to the people who are near us and some time, uh, and I'm going to get you to shout some answers out from the questions that are on the sheet. So anything in a box you're doing, anything not in a box I'm doing, that's the plan. And uh, you'll see we're starting in a box. So if you could turn to the people near you, I'm just going to give you five minutes and you're going to answer two questions. One, why is the Bible so important? And then number two, and Matty, slightly, if you were paying attention to what Matty said, which I clearly wasn't because I wasn't sure when to come up, but if you were paying attention to what Matty said, he's given you some of the answers already. So why is the Bible so important? And then second, what are some of the challenges that we face when we try to read and understand the Bible? Okay, those two questions, five minutes, go. I forgot to give the pen notice. Uh, Glamorous assistant number one is walking around with a box of pens. If you need a pen, please wave. He'll give one to you. Okay, let's come back together. I'm keen just to get you shouting and uh, telling me the answers to this. Why is the Bible so important? Question number one. I'm going to start... If I have to name people, it could get awkward because I may not know your name. But uh, (laughs) uh, let's start over here on my left. Someone, anyone? It's God's Word. Thank you, Hilary. That's a good start. Any advance on that? Sorry, I'm not saying any advance on God's Word. That would be a bad way to start a Bible overview. But any additional things, that any extra detail people want to color in for us? Thank you. So uh, God's word, and therefore it reveals God to us. Thank you. Yep, sufficient for, so uh, everything that you need so that you can come to know God and be saved, adopted into his family. Yeah, thank you. So even just looking across um, Western society, it has been a foundational document, kind of uh, much of stuff. If you saw the the coronation, you see how closely uh, in times past people used to treasure the Bible, um, it seems. And uh, there are echoes of that in society today and lots of ways in which people are trying to depart from that. Any more on why the Bible is so important? 
Margaret? John told me you had something important to say. So when we talk about God making himself known through the Bible, supremely the way that he makes himself known is in Jesus. We're going to see the whole Bible is a book about Jesus. Uh, and therefore, as we get to know the Bible, we get to know Jesus. Thank you. I feel like we could be doing better than this. Uh, any? Oh, so not just how we come to know God, but also how we live. So the kind of the foundational authority for everything that we believe, everything that we try and live out as well. It's how, yeah, thank you. Any more? Go on, Grace. Yeah, thank you. So we're not the creator. God's the creator. We're just his creatures, but it's how we, we relate to him. He's made us in such a way that we're able to comprehend his speech to us. And uh, the scriptures, um, along with creation and with our conscience, are the way in which he makes himself known to us, but authoritatively there in the, in the scriptures and in his son, obviously. Any more than that? Powerful to change us. So it's not just how God speaks, it's how God works in our lives. So therefore, if we want God to be at work in our life, then we want to be uh, in the scriptures. Thank you. Jesus says the Bible's important. Is that what you said? Go on, give us another sentence, Kirsty. Jesus thinks it's great, so we should think it's great too. Yep, love that. Thank you very much. Okay, what makes the Bible, we'll, I hope we can add to that by the end of a, a few days together, what makes the Bible hard to read or to understand? Or is there anything that we find hard or difficult as we, we come to it? Did you get on to question two? What did you guys say? Yeah, thanks. We're at least a couple of thousand years away from when it was written, so that makes it hard for us sometimes to relate to what's going on in its pages. Okay, so it can be hard for us morally in that it's challenging, it reveals us. Um, uh, the Bible talks about it, it being a, a hammer that breaks our hearts or a sword that pierces us. And so it can be difficult in the sense of painful because we're left exposed by it. Yep, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So it's not even just that it's one book that was that's 2,000 years old that was all written at the same time, but it charts a history over hundreds and hundreds of years, and uh, we're not always sure where we are in the story. Thank you. Yeah, there are lots of different types of writing in the Bible, aren't there? And one of them that, that Samuel's just mentioned, apocalyptic, lots of vision sort of stuff. And that's not a type of literature that we read very much in schools or we think about very much. Uh, and therefore, kind of getting our heads around the imagery can be difficult when we come to it. It can feel uh, very remote from us.
Yeah. Sometimes, thankfully, um, <coughs> we, we could overblow that issue because the, the English translations, all of them actually that we have in front of us are brilliant and we, they are God's word. Um, but it is, it is nevertheless the fact that it's not just written a long time ago, but written in Hebrew, written in Greek, little bits in Aramaic. So uh, we're dependent on translators uh, who, who uh, and some of them disagree with each other about how words are said. Uh, words should be translated. Thankfully, those are minimal issues uh, most of the time. Go on, Tina. Yeah, thanks. That's a really interesting one. That I think we live in a, a really instant society, don't we? We want everything on a plate super quick. And because of the nature of, of any kind of serious literature, but because of the nature of the Bible with its spread over hundreds of years and all of that, it sometimes takes just quite hard work to try and understand it. And uh, we're not always willing to put in the graft. We want, it, uh, we want to be spoon-fed much of the time. So we've got a bit of a conundrum. We've got that the Bible is absolutely vital. It's how we know God. It's how we know Jesus. It's how we are saved. It's how we are transformed. Uh, it's how God speaks to us, how God works in us and works in his church. So it's an important book, but it's hard to understand. And one of the biggest challenges that we face is just the sheer size of the Bible. We've mentioned, haven't we, there's a collection of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, but written by tens of different authors across hundreds and hundreds of years, covering multiple different eras of salvation history, the time before uh, the law was given, the time after the law was given, the time bef just before Jesus came, the time after he came, the church, and that makes it difficult. Lots of different genres of writing. But for all of that, the fundamental conviction is that it's one book with one message about the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we just turn very briefly to Luke 24? These are the verses. It's on page 885, if you're in one of our Bibles, page 885. It's one of the verses that um, Margaret was referring to. Luke 24, I'm going to read verses 45. Oh, we'll start in 44. So Jesus is on the Emmaus Road. He's risen from the dead. He's talking to, some, uh, to his disciples. Uh, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So that's kind of shorthand for the Old Testament. Everything written about me, says Jesus, in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand everything that had been written, the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem." So he's saying the whole of the Bible is about him. Specifically, it is about his death and his resurrection. And it charts two major things that have to happen in the world. First of all, he has to come to fulfill those scriptures, and then the message about him needs to be preached to all of the nations of the world. But there it is on Jesus' own lips that the whole Bible is a book about him. Um, the most simple way I've ever come up with with trying to explain how this works is that we can think of the Old Testament um, 
It, you, you know what it's like whenever there's a, a big event, take a coronation, take a sports match, uh, there's loads of build-up in the media in advance. Then there's the main event itself, and there's normally a bit of expert analysis thrown in while you're watching the main event. And then there's loads of debrief afterwards, loads of sort of post-event uh, analysis. The most helpful way I can think of explaining it is that the Old Testament part of the Bible is like the pre-match build-up to the big event. Jesus is the big event. Uh, the Gospels tell us about him, and there's lots of expert analysis thrown in as well, telling us what he's doing and why he's doing it and what it means for us. And then everything else is the post-match analysis, telling us about, uh, helping us to understand more about him and why he came, and also applying those things to us in our lives today while we wait for him to come again. But the whole thing pre-match, live commentary, post-match analysis is about him. And the aim of these four sessions of the Bible Overview is to try and help us to see how the whole Bible is about him and to try and summarize its message in just a few easy steps. There are loads of ways, let me say, that we could do that. If you're trying to trace through the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there are lots of different approaches that you can take and there are pros and cons to all of them. We could trace the theme of covenant through the Bible. We could trace, trace the theme of gathering and scattering through the Bible. We could trace the theme of life and death through the Bible. Lots of different things that we could do, and we may do those in future years. But on this occasion, the one that we've picked to go with is the theme of kingdom. Uh, and my hope and my prayer is that reflecting on it together will give us a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and why he came and how we can live in the light of everything that he's done. The simple definition of kingdom is there on the sheet. We're talking about God's people living in God's land or place, under God's rule, and enjoying his blessing. And what we're going to do is see how at every stage through the history of the Bible, God is working to grow his kingdom. And if you were to flick through the handout over the, the 18 pages, you'll see that we're going to have eight main sections through the course of the overview. We're going to see how God's kingdom is patterned. There are going to be eight, eight Ps, therefore, that you can try and get your head around uh, over the next few days. God's kingdom is patterned in creation. It perishes in the fall. God promises to, to, to build it, to establish it. We'll see in Genesis 12. We'll see it being lived out a bit, portrayed in history uh, of Israel. We'll then see it being prophesied once it's all gone wrong and the exiles happened and God's saying, I'm still working to build my kingdom. We'll see it being present in Jesus. We'll see it being proclaimed in the church or preached and then we'll see it being perfected in the new creation. So those eight Ps are going to are a basic summary of where we're going over the next few days. And I'm hoping that we'll get through the first few at least this morning. But the purpose in all of this is to help us try and understand how the whole Bible fits together. How it is one story from beginning to end about one man, Jesus Christ. I think of it a bit like... Um, a wardrobe. We spend our time often in life groups or on Sundays working through individual books of the Bible, which is a wonderful thing to do. 
And what I'm hoping an, an overview like this will do is give us a wardrobe in which we can hang each of those studies so that when we, you come one, one term and we're studying Daniel or we're studying Judges or we're studying Joshua or we're studying Mark or we're studying Romans, whatever we're studying, we're not always sure how it all fits together. But I'm hoping that this big framework will be like a wardrobe in which we can then hang the individual things that we learn at other times. But it's not just as we keep on saying so that we can understand a book better. It's a wonderful book. It's the most printed book in history. Uh, It's a very important book, but our aim is not just to understand a book, however important it is. Our aim is to know God better, and therefore, as we know him better, so better to know ourselves and our place in God's world. We'll only ever know who we are. This is one of the big points that John Calvin makes in his Institutes. We'll only ever really know ourselves as we get to know God. We'll only know our place in the world as we get to know him and his purposes. So, first quiz question. Not important. Please don't feel obliged to know the answers. I didn't. Who said, let's start at the beginning, it's a very good place to start? I'm reckoning Kirsty knows the answer. I'm reckoning Rachel knows the answer. We've got some singing going on over there. So that is Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, I think. Is that right? Excellent. Uh, This is slightly more testing, but I'm hoping some of you will get it. Begin at the beginning and go on till you come to the end and then stop. Surely. Rachel, surely. You should do it. PhD in English or something, and learn, learn some stuff. Uh, Lewis Carroll in the, in the Wizard of Oz, say, there you go. Anyway, so that's uh, entirely irrelevant. Now, over the page to number one, God's kingdom is patterned in creation. And what we're going to see is that what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is not just like the, the introduction to the Bible, but it's a picture of everything that God is planning to do in Uh, the world and through the world. So I said you needed a handout. You also need a Bible, and it would be a great thing if you have Genesis 1 and 2 open in front of you. If I ever run out of things to say, I'm just going to start reading at Genesis 1, and uh, that will keep us going for a while. Uh, I'm going to keep trying to be reading from the Bible to show you where I'm getting what I'm saying, but obviously I can't read the whole Bible in the course of the five hours that we have together. It's a wonderful thing to do. You can get an audio Bible free on your phone these days. The ESV app has an audio thing. If you listen to it for, I think they said 20 minutes a day, you'll get through the whole Bible within the course of five or six months, Is that, uh, or something like that. If it takes you a bit longer, I'm sorry, 30 minutes is a year, something like you'll be able to find it. But it doesn't take you very long to get through the whole Bible, and it's a wonderful thing to do if you're not familiar with the big picture. But creation is this wonderful act of God. He speaks to bring order um, uh, out, out of disorder and darkness. He brings life. He brings beauty. And then the pinnacle of creation is mankind, or the first peak of creation, as uh, uh, some theologians call it. So again, not just page one of the Bible, but a picture of the ultimate purpose of God. Let me just read from Genesis 1.26. God said, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness.'" And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps 
on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the uh, heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then if you glance down to verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So we know in Genesis 1, everything is good. There's no sin yet in the world. There's no death yet in the world. No rebellion against God. There is God and there is mankind. And we are living in perfect relationship with one another and in perfect relationship with him and in perfect harmony with the creation that God has made. Everything is good. It's repeated. And it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And here in verse 31, it was very good. This is the world as it was meant to be. And it is a picture of God's people, Adam and Eve at this stage, uh, living in God's place. Uh, If you read on into Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden, living under God's rule and enjoying the blessing of relationship with him. So just to pick those little bits out, God's people, uh, male and female, made in his image, meaning that we have the capacity to know him, to relate to him, to hear him speak, and that he entrusts us with dominion over the world. We're not just like all of the other creatures. Uh, We are different because humanity alone is made in God's image to relate to him and to rule the world for him. And so male and female together, equal, different to one another, Um, as we know from other parts, from here and from elsewhere in the Bible, but made to serve God and to do his work. And men and women need one another to do God's work in the world. We're meant to work together in happy harmony, Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with each other. Um, I've tried to put it in a picture. The only place, the only sort of... um, uh, man and stick man and stick woman I could find and copy easily onto the handout came from toilet signs in the old day where there used to be separate uh, men and women toilets everywhere you went. So that's what that was. Uh, and it is a picture of man and woman together. See, they're holding hands, they're friends. The, the little curve at the bottom is the world and they are in happy relationship with the world. God is ruling them through his word and the crown is representing God. So that's what it is. So they're in God's place. God gives them a wonderful garden to to give in, uh, uh, to live in, a place of abundant life and beauty. Uh, And it's not just an an allotment uh, or sort of some, oh, isn't the countryside great thing. It's a a temple. Uh, As you read Genesis 2, 8 to 14, there's loads of language there that will then get picked up and used and explained in the temple uh, later on and picked up in Revelation 21 and 22. This is the place where you can meet with God and know him. And they did just that. Like any loving father, God gave good boundaries to them so that they could flourish and thrive under his rule. So if we read uh, 2 verses 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But that rule is good. This is what is going to be good for you. 
if you, carry, if you live within my boundaries, you do the stuff that I've said you're free to do, and you don't do the thing that I'm telling you not to do. Only one uh, prohibition in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat the fruit of that tree, or you shall surely die. And they are enjoying God's blessing. So there's this wonderful picture in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. It's the, the ultimate end point of the whole of humanity. You can see it as a picture of the new creation. This is the purpose and uh, goal that God has for everything. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this is perfect rest. Uh, God in perfect relationship with his people, the world working perfectly, everybody knowing God's blessing. It is the way that things should be. You'll see the summary on the sheet. God's people, Adam and Eve in God's land, living under God's rule, and enjoying his blessing in relationship with him. And would that it had stayed that way, but it didn't. We know that God's kingdom perishes through sin. And Genesis 3 is one of the saddest chapters in the whole of the Bible. Uh, let me read from 3, 1 to 6, as we see where things start to go wrong. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the, fruit, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So this is where everything goes wrong. Uh, and you can see the, the little stages as it goes through verses 1 to 6. First, this, this wonderful, loving rule of God through his word uh, is set aside. So God's word is doubted. The serpent says, did God actually say? Uh, it's distorted. Neither shall you touch it. God had never said anything about touching it. He just said, don't eat it. Then it's denied by the serpent, you will not surely die. And then it's disobeyed outright. They took of the fruit and they ate it. And this is not only the, the first sin in the Bible, but this sets the pattern for every sin that ever happens. And I think of it in two under two particular headings. You see how God's goodness is doubted. The, the suggestion that the serpent gives is that there is good stuff that God is not giving you. And the way that you get the good stuff is by ignoring what God has said and going and doing something different. Make yourselves the, the kings and queens of your life, and you can decide the difference between what you want to be right and what you want to be wrong. You're in charge. You're the, the king. You're the queen. Uh, ignore what God is saying. So God's goodness is doubted, 
and God's judgment is denied, uh, you will not surely die. And that's the pattern of all sin everywhere. We don't believe that God is our ultimate good, and uh, we are told repeatedly and believe far too easily that we can ignore him and get away with it. His goodness is doubted, his judgment is denied, and so we think we can just do whatever we want. Uh, and you'll see this pattern elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, they see the fruit, they desire the fruit, and then they take it. They see that it's good for the eyes, they desire it, and so they want it. And you'll see that pattern being replayed in your own life, uh, time after time, far more than you would want it to be. This is the, a picture of the, the first sin, but also of all sin. And what I want us to remember and to see is that this is a personal and a relational thing. This is not just breaking a rule. It's not that there's an independent list of school rules over here that is somehow apart from God and the relationship that we're made for with him. This moment is a deeply personal offense and act of rebellion and rejection of God and his goodness and his love. I love you, he says, so I'm going to tell you what is good for you so that we can live in relationship with one another and you can experience my blessing. That's what I want for you. And we chuck it back in his face, Adam and Eve uh, foundationally here, but all of us all the time. And as we do, we are turning our back on that relationship with God. We are saying to our creator, we know better. So we are, it, there's an authority thing going on. It's an act of treason against our maker. We're saying, yeah, we're creatures, but we know better, so we're going to do what we want to do. But there's a, 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 it's not just like God is the cold authority. He's the, the good, loving ruler, uh, father even to Adam uh, and to Eve. And uh, they are turning their back on him and relationship with him. And it brings with it terrible consequences. So for starting at verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and, on, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I'll multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I glance on to verse 22. Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So you can see how everything has, has gone wrong. 
God's creation pattern had been reserved, uh, reversed. There was God, there was Adam and Eve, and there were the animals. And in uh, Genesis 3, 1 to 6, we saw it being flipped on his head. The serpent was calling the shots. Adam wasn't teaching his wife. She was leading him into sin, and God was left at the bottom of the pile. And this is God's righteous and just judgment on that act of rebellion against him. And whereas the big word in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, uh, the big words were rest and blessing, now the big words are curse. Everything is going wrong. The serpent is cursed. Um, he's going to enjoy this apparent victory where he strikes the heel of uh, the, the woman. Sorry, he, he's enjoying this apparent victory right there and then because he is getting what he wanted and leading Adam and Eve into sin. But... Uh, uh, verse 14, he's cursed to be on the ground and uh, uh, there's going to be enmity forever between, the se- between Satan and the seed of Adam and Eve and then one will come who will bruise the head of the serpent and at the same time he'll strike the, the heel of that seed. The woman is cursed, the pain in childbearing, the battle of the sexes, the man is cursed, pain in work, the creation is cursed, it's subject to frustration and decay. And whereas there had been life, now there will be death. Just as God has said, you shall die. The serpent said, you shall not surely die. And the death principally that it's being talked about is the death of separation from God in relationship with him. It's spiritual death of this instance because they're still alive, clearly, but they are dead spiritually. They are in broken Uh, relationship with God from that moment on and so they are banished and we thought that freedom from God was going to be so good for us and in the end they're banished east of Eden to live in a land that is cursed as people who are cursed and who are separate from God and all of humanity, um, John Steinbeck's novel, is that right, East of Eden? All of humanity from this moment on has been living east of Eden in a messed up world as messed up people in messed up relationships with one another and separated from our God and under his judgment because of that first, in, uh, that first act of rebellion, which then each of us pick up and run with ourselves and uh, mirror and echo and repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. The result is that everything is now estranged. I tried to put it in the picture. You'll see um, there's a cross over God's rule and blessing over us. You'll see that man and woman are now separated from each other, and you'll see that together they're in fractured relationship with the world as well. Everything's off-center now. Uh, it's broken. It is not the way that things should be. So the summary, God's people are no longer in God's place, banished. They're no longer under his rule. They've ignored his word, no longer enjoying his blessing, now cursed. They are now in the kingdom of sin and death. And by rights, the history of humanity could end there. But in his mercy, there are already these hints that God is going to do something about it. Here's the one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And isn't there this wonderful note of grace that when you've got this, um, you, you, they're banished from the garden and God puts cherubim there and this flaming sword that's turning in every direction so that they can't get back in. 
one of the things that they, they can't get back into that's mentioned is the tree of life. Because if they could get back to the tree of life, then this state would be enshrined permanently forever. But God wants to do something different. He wants to do something new and to provide a new way for people to enjoy life, not uh, in restored relationship with him. And the rest of the Bible is going to show us, on repeat, the ongoing effects of uh, mankind's rebellion against God. As you read through the Old Testament, the lesson most pages is, gosh, we desperately need a saviour. We desperately need God's rule over us because look how badly it goes wrong when we reject him. Uh, and it's also the story of how God is going to work to undo man's rebellion against God through this serpent-crushing king. Maddie, this session finishes at 11.45. Excellent. We are doing very well. This is the sort of stuff that I could talk about for hours and hours and hours and regularly do, but I'm trying to move through it because I know that this bit will probably be more familiar to some of us. We are just going to go back to our little groups for a second and uh, pick some, some questions from there. I don't really mind which ones you do. Uh, what did Genesis 1 to 3, uh, how do they shape your view of God? How does that compare with what your friends, maybe even the way that you're tempted to think about God sometimes? Uh, it would be good for you to do that. And then uh, that first question, everybody, and then how does it shape your view of people? How does it shape your view of the world? How does it shape your view of the, the efforts that are constantly launched uh, to save the world that we hear about all of the time? Um, back in your groups, uh, we may or may not shout out some answers to this, but it would be great to have a think about them for a few minutes. Okay, let's uh, come back there. How does uh, Genesis 1 to 3 shape your view of God? Shout out some answers, please. What does it tell you about God? True and keeps his word, positively and negatively, yeah, in judgment. Thank you. You were definitely talking. Amy, I'm going to pick on you. Thank you. So he is good, fully good, and true and just and fair. One rule, but it was a good rule. Thank you. Any more? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So he doesn't just wipe everything out straight away. Yeah, gracious, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Creator, so he's worthy of our obedience. Go on. Mm. Great. Yeah, so not just a taskmaster, not just a headmaster. Very easy to have that kind of, I think even in early days of my Christian life, I just had that authority figure kind of understanding of God, but so much more to it than that. 
Let me ask you a question that's not here. What, what would it... Mm, do I see this question? Yeah. What would, how would the Bible feel different if Genesis 1 to 11 wasn't there? If it just started at Genesis 12 with the story of Abraham and God saying, picking this bloke and saying, great, I'm going to, you go off and we'll see what he says to him in a second. But how would it feel reading the Bible if we didn't have these early chapters of Genesis? Yeah, thank you. So we'd have no understanding of where the mess came from in the world. That's certainly true. Yeah, we wouldn't know God's relationship with the world. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we'd miss a lot of God's faithfulness and promise making and keeping. I think at the most fundamental level, it would feel like the story, the rest of the Old Testament would feel like the story of one nation. And it would just be one nation's story rather than the story of the whole of the cosmos. The fact that Genesis 1 is there sets the story of Israel that develops, is fulfilled in Jesus in the church today and goes to the new creation as being the... The, the means by which God is achieving a global and cosmic purpose. Genesis 1 sets the scale as vast as it can possibly be, and uh, it tells us that the God who then works in and through Abraham and in Jesus is the God of the whole cosmos. He's not just Israel's God, and then Egypt had a God, and then someone else had a God, and someone else had another God, and it was just like a battle to see who would end up being the winner at the end of the day. This is the ultimate creator who's worthy of the worship of every nation who chooses to work through one nation to achieve uh, his eternal purposes. How does Genesis 1 to 3 affect your view of people? you have things to say who am I going to pick on thank you <laughs> yeah we're very weak I love that it's not the most difficult command to keep is it there was only one of them and uh, we managed to muck that up yeah and you could, you, could, you could point the finger at, at Adam and Eve if uh, we didn't do it all the time. It's not like we don't know what God wants us to do. Uh, love me with all your heart. Okay. Oh, no. Maybe not. Um, yeah. So thank you, though. We are very weak. Yeah. Any, there's therefore realistic expectations of people. Um, don't, don't expect the people around you to be perfect. They're never going to be. They'll make you big promises. And they'll fail to keep them. That's the way that we're going to be treated by people. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, thank you. It's a helpful point from Sammy. If you didn't hear it, he's saying quite often when people are talking about injustice or seeing things that are wrong with the world, there's a kind of that's just the way that it is vibe to the way that things are said. Uh, but what we can actually say, because we've seen Genesis 1 and 2, is that it's not the way that God intended things to be. So that when we see pain and oppression and injustice, we're right to hate it because it's not, and death, because it's not the way that God uh, first intended things to be. Thank you. But it is all of that mess is the consequence of mankind's rebellion against God. And one other thing to say just before we move on is therefore we need to be uh, realistic about the uh, ambitions that we have, and I'm trying to phrase this carefully, for all of our efforts to rid the world of injustice in all of its forms. We are banished from the garden. We are east of Eden. And so every effort that we ever make to save the environment or to change the world so that it becomes perfect is never going to succeed. It doesn't mean that things can't get better. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged in those things, but we need to be realistic that they are not the fundamental problem. They are the symptom. The fundamental problem is the relationship uh, that we walked out on with God. And so what we need to help people, ultimate change in the world is only going to come through the Lord Jesus as people come back into relationship with God and are transformed from the inside out to live just and righteous lives, which is why the biggest need in our world, as we'll see, is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior over and above every other worthy cause that is out there. Let's move on to Genesis uh, 12, if you could turn there, please. You'll see we're two Ps down out of eight already. We're going to slow down a little bit, but we had God's kingdom is patterned in creation, then perishes, and now it is promised. I'm going to read Genesis 12, 1 to 7. There's always one, and it's usually Hillary. So there we go. You okay, Hillary? Everything all right? Good. We'll carry on. Thank you. So Genesis 12, uh, starting at verse 1. So uh, I should have said, three, uh, 4 to 11, everything just goes horribly wrong. Uh, Cain and Abel happens in chapter 4, the first murder in the Bible. So they're banished from the garden. We said they were in broken relationship with one another. And here enough, we have the first case of sibling murder. Uh, things continue to go wrong, so wrong that God then sends the flood. But he rescues Noah uh, and some of his family and some animals as a, as a picture of God making a new start. So there's the new start, but then Noah's a sinner as well, and so it keeps going wrong, keeps going wrong. The Tower of Babel, um, we've skipped over chapter, even chapter 5, is just this great litany of uh, death and, and people who died. He died, he died, he died. Uh, then there's Noah, then there's the Tower of Babel, uh, mankind trying to get up to the heavens because it thinks that it's better than God. God thwarts their efforts, confuses their languages, and they're scattered. So things are as bad as they can be at the end of chapter uh, 11 in terms of God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Good relationship with one another, good relationship with God in God's special place. Now we're scattered. 
Um, we're not living in relationship with God. Languages are confused, so we're not in relationship with one another either. And then we get to Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here is God setting out the agenda that shapes the rest of the Bible. Okay? We've seen it all went, we saw what it was meant to be like, we saw it all go wrong, and now this is God telling how he is going to make all things new again. And you can see the same elements. Uh, that here is Abraham, he's just one man, but God is going to make of him, verse 2, a great nation. Uh, he's going to take him to a land that he's going to show him, mentions that in verse 1, uh, and then he says again to your offspring, I will give this land, in verse 7. Uh, he is going to, Abraham and his descendants are going to be blessed by God, and they're going to be a blessing to the world. So you see the three big elements of people, land, or, and then rule and blessing, which always go together. And just to mention a couple of other verses where this promise to Abraham is repeated, if you flick over to chapter 15 and uh, see verse 5, Abraham's heard this promise, and he's wondering how it's going to happen because he's an old man and he hasn't got any kids. And uh, he thinks that the heir to his house, if you, uh, if you look up to verse 2, is this bloke, Eliezer of Damascus. Um, and, God says, and he says to Abraham, um, Abraham says, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Uh, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's the, a little picture, Abraham, there, of the way that people will come back into relationship with God. God makes a promise. Abraham believes it, and it's credited. God gives it to him as righteousness. But it's also an expansion of the, the promise. You're going to be a great nation. How great? were like the stars in the sky. And uh, across on the other page, chapter 17, verse 5. Um, do I need 17, verse 5? No longer shall you be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you... Where is it, sand on you? And it's twenty-two seventeen. I also wanted to mention. Sorry, chapter 22, verse 17. I'll surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So this big promise, you're going to be a great people, you're going to have a land to live in, you're going to be blessed by me, and through you, blessing and your descendants, blessing will go to the whole world. So we're to think of this as the reversal 
of the effects of the fall. The fall, the, the summary heading for Genesis 3, where mankind uh, turned its back on God. In Genesis 3, um, as I put it on the sheet, they were no longer God's people. Uh, they were out of relationship with him. Now they're going to be a whole nation of God's people. In Genesis 3, they were banished from God's land, the Garden of Eden. Now they're going to be given the land of Canaan. In Genesis 3, they were cursed by God. Now they're going to be blessed and be a blessing to the world. So the repetition of the word blessed, blessed, blessed is taking us back to Genesis 2. This is what God's purpose was for the whole of creation in the first place. And it's saying it's going to be the undoing of Genesis 3. Curse, curse, curse. God is now going to bless once again. And the rest of the Bible is going to be the outworking or the fulfillment of the promises that God makes here. So people have said the Bible comes in two halves, Genesis 1 to 11, uh, and then the rest of it. And there is a lot of truth in that. And the things I, I want us to lodge once again are that God's fundamental desire is to bless. You see, when God is working here, mankind has done everything it can to make stuff go wrong and has attracted the curse of God. But God does not leave it like that. God is a God of grace who intervenes and whose fundamental purpose is to want to bless. So I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And whenever we're thinking about God, the thing that we need to remember is that his desires for us are good. Uh, I want us to lodge, too, that God's plan includes all of the nations of the world. So it's true that he's going to work through one man and his descendants to make them one nation. But even at the outset, God's purpose is not for a unitary nation. God's purpose is that his blessing will get to the whole world, all of the nations of the world. So that the Israel, uh, Abraham's descendants who will become Israel are to be a channel of God's blessings, a mean of God's blessing, means of God's blessing to the rest of the nations. And we're to register that it's going to happen through Abraham's seed, through a son of Abraham, as he'll be described later on in the Bible. So, so far we've been told there's going to be someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now we're told that there's going to be a son of Abraham. And these are the figures that we're looking out for. Who is this serpent crusher son of Abraham who is going to be the one through whom all of the nations of the world are blessed and that God's original creation purpose is fulfilled. That's the way that the narrative is being teed up. And over the, the next um, five or six chapters, of, five or six books of the Bible, the story of the, the, the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham dominates. Uh, you'll get this in any uh, book, but this theme of people and of land and of blessing and rule is now going to be fulfilled or begin to be fulfilled in the life of Abraham and his descendants. Um, and we're going to begin this morning, I think, to track a little bit of that through. 11.45, 11.34. Yeah. 
Okay, we'll, we'll do, we'll do um, the, the beginning of our fourth P. God's kingdom is portrayed in history. So God has said this is going to happen, and the way that it's going to happen is through Abraham and his descendants. First major chunk that we're going to look at is from Genesis 12 to Joshua. You know that people talk about the Pentateuch sometimes. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, some people think that we should probably talk about a hexateuch instead, six books of the Bible, and add Joshua to that list because of the way that these promises in Genesis 12 dominate the narrative all the way through to the end of Joshua. By the time we get to the end of Joshua, as we will see, God's people will be many, and they will be in the land, and God will have kept his, be keeping his promises, and they will be enjoying his blessing. That's a uh, sneak preview. It begins with an emphasis on people, which I would argue is the major focus of Genesis 12 through to Exodus 19. So, the story of Genesis goes, these are the generations of. That's the kind of heading that you get. You get these are the generations back in chapter 2. You then get these are the generations of Noah. You get these are the generations of Abraham. You get these are the generations of Isaac. These are the generations. That's how the, the book of, of Genesis is broken up into different parts. But the summary is the beginning of the fulfillment that they are going to be a great nation. So in Genesis 17... There is one man uh, and one barren woman. And uh, when God promises that they are... that, So God says, I'll establish my covenant between me and your offspring uh, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings or the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And as you know in the story, or you may know in the story, when Abraham and uh, Sarah are told that uh, it's going, God's purpose and promises are going to be fulfilled through their descendants, they laugh because they're old, she can't have children, and then God miraculously provides a child, and then that child has a child, and then that child has children. And so by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, uh, after the story of Joseph, the story of this one family has now become that there are 70 of them. In uh, all the descendants of Jacob, we read in Exodus 1-5, uh, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And we are to read the story of Exodus as being the continuation of the story of Genesis. I think this is right. I didn't check. The Hebrew, I think, the very first word, if someone's got it in front of them, of, Genesis, of Exodus is and. So it's, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. It's not there in your English, but I think it is just a direct continuation of the story. God's been doing this in Genesis, and now he's going to keep on doing it as we go through, which is to say that the text is deliberately telling us that we're reading a consecutive story rather than just random and disassociated things. By Exodus 4, God calls the Israelites his son. By Exodus 19, after the slavery, when they've been uh, rescued from the land, uh, there are over 600,000 Israelites. And there are some Egyptians who had joined them, uh, who uh, fled at the same time as him. And they are, in Exodus 19, verse 6, God calls them 
you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God had promised Abraham, and we've skipped over uh, a lot of multiplication, obviously, but God had promised to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. And by Exodus 19, numerically at least, they are getting well on the way. 600,000 is not as numerous as the stars, but it is a very good start. It is 11.38, so I'm not going to do what I was going to do next. Dan, how long is the video? Ooh, six minutes, and I've got seven left. So, uh, over the page, that's ideal. Uh, they are also rescued people. I thought you might be bored of me. So, here's a video you can watch telling the story of Exodus 1 to 18. Summarize where we've got to so far. The promise of Genesis 12 was that there'd be a great nation uh, that comes from Abraham, that they would be given the land of Canaan, that they would be blessed by God and would be a blessing to the world. And you'll see the reality by Exodus 19. They're a great nation, but they're still countable. They're not countless. They're out of Egypt, but they're not in Canaan. And they're grumbling. So even though they've been rescued from Egypt, they're not yet trusting God properly. The problem of not think, of thinking that they know better than God what is good for them is still there in their hearts, and there hasn't been a final solution to that problem yet. But there's one verse that I want to take us back to in chapter 4 as we close. If I might, Exodus chapter 4 and verses 22 to 23. And the reason I'm doing this is that regularly in the Bible, uh, the Bible picks up the the way that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and makes it a pattern or a, a picture, a type of the way that he rescues us from slavery to sin and Satan and death. So that the picture of us being in the wilderness on the way to heaven is there, but we're a saved people who are here for this reason. So Exodus 4 verse 22 Thus shall, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So the reason that God saves his people, he loves them, he's heard their groaning, he wants what is good for them, that's not to live under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt, it's to live under his rule in the land of Canaan but he wants to save them so that they may serve him. And one big way that we should think of ourselves as Christians, without wanting to jump too far forward to the end of the story, is people who have been saved by God so that we can serve him. The purpose wasn't just for Israel to be saved and to love being saved. It was so that they could be the means of God's blessing to all of the nations of the world. He wanted them to live under his rule and he wanted them to be a blessing to all of the nations. And we're in a very similar boat. God has saved us wonderfully through Jesus. We'll get to that in due course. But he saves us in order that we can serve him. And when we begin to get our heads around that and to be a blessing to others, when we begin to get our heads around that, it changes the way that we think of ourselves, our identity, and it changes our approach to life fundamentally. We're saved in order to serve.
We have much to thank God for. Maddie, what do you want me to do now? Pray? Sorry. Pray. Uh, Our Father, we want to thank you. Um, We're just at the beginning, but we want to thank you for the way that we can already see um, your grand purposes being worked out, your desire to have a people for yourself who will serve you. Thank you for this picture in Genesis and that we see ultimately fulfilled in the new creation of your people in perfect relationship with you, in perfect relationship with one another and with your world, living under your rule and enjoying your blessing. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you want people to know you, that you want people to experience your blessing. And thank you that we have that blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ now and we'll have it perfectly in the new creation. We want to pray as we keep going through this overview that you would keep our minds uh, attentive and that our hearts may burn within us as we see the scale of your purposes and the glory of your Son. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.